I'm going to ask you, even though we're going to start the book of Psalms, to turn to two places, 2 Kings chapter 14 and Habakkuk chapter 3. So 2 Kings chapter 14, we're good Stephen? Stephen, we're good? 2 Kings chapter 14 and Habakkuk chapter 3. Everybody hears me okay? Got enough juice? All right. All right. So the book of Psalms, not the book of Palms, but the book of Psalms, right? 150 chapters, as you see on your sheet, I left some on your table. 150 chapters of 2,461 verses, 42,704 words. Longest book of the Bible and the heart of your Bible, which is interesting that God says it's all about the heart and he makes the heart of his book really the biggest part of his book because it's really all about the heart. Um, Now, a lot of the, the Psalms are named and they have authors attributed to them and many of them are not named. David is said to have written 73 Psalms are named that David wrote them. Uh, Asaph, David's song leader, is named as the author of 12 Psalms. Um, I don't know how crazy you want to get. That's Psalm 50 and 73 to 83, all the Psalms of Asaph. Um, One uh, one, uh, man named Heman, he's credited for writing Psalm 88. Uh, Ethan is the author of Psalm 89. Moses is said to be the author of Psalm 90. Uh, There are 11 psalms that are written for the sons of Korah. There are two psalms that are written for Solomon. That's Psalm 72 and 127. And there's lots of speculation because there are so many psalms that don't have authors named to them. Uh, Some speculate that the sons of Korah wrote some. Some speculate that Solomon wrote some. Some even speculate that Hezekiah wrote some. But there's really just speculation. So I wouldn't hang my hat on them. I think if the Lord wanted you to know who wrote them, he might have indicated so for the ones that are unnamed to me they just remain anonymous and unclear in their authorship uh the key word is really the word sila um it appears 71 times in the book of psalms and uh the book of psalms is a music book it's uh the song book of israel and uh it's interesting the word sila appears because if there's any musicians in the house you know there's a a selah in a measure of music, right? A pause or a rest. That's what selah means. So in a way, in Israel's songbook, it's full of these pauses and these rests, like in a measure of music. But I want you to look at 2 Kings chapter 14 and look at the fir- uh, verse number 7. Because interestingly enough, the first um, mention of selah is not a pause or a, a beat in a work in a piece of music, it's a place. And in 2 Kings 14, it's talking about a King Jehoash, and it says in verse 7, he slew of Edom in the valley of salt ten thousand and took Selah by war and called the name of it Jokdil unto this day. So the first mention of Selah is a place. Selah is really, in terms of a place, a place called Sila Petra, the great rock-walled city in present-day Jordan. Uh, it was the capital of Edom. That's why you see him doing that. He slew of Edom in this place called Sila. And um, 
Selah is where Israel is going to be hiding during the Great Tribulation in that great rock city. Uh, when God talks about hiding them in the rock, He's hiding them in Selah Petra, that rock city. And it's interesting that it shows up over and over again in the book of Psalms because the book of Psalms, Selah, is a place of rest. It's a place where Israel's going to hide themselves during trouble, Selah. And that's a lot of what Psalms is about, right? David running from trouble. And it's also the promised rest that Israel's going to get after the tribulation in that millennial kingdom, Selah. So it's a reminder to stay hidden in that rock, and then God has that 1,000-year Selah coming once these calamities be overpassed. So if you look at Habakkuk chapter 3, this is the last time you see the word Selah pop up in your Bible, and it's all about the second coming of Christ and how Selah just keeps getting interjected in the Lord's triumphant return for Israel. Aren't you waiting for that? Oh, I'm waiting for that. Habakkuk... Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Look at chapter 3. Now, chapter 3 of Habakkuk is all a song for the Lord's return. And it's got Selah in it uh, three times. Uh, Habakkuk 3.3. God came from Teman. That's over by Edom. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. Right? His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. That's part of the path of the second advent. He comes up from Teman in Paran. That's over by Moab and Edom. And he says, Selah right there because the rest is coming. Look at verse number nine. Now he's talking about the Lord and he says, Thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. So he's talking about Jesus Christ coming back as this warrior. And there's that word again, Selah interjected in there. And if that wasn't the best one, 13 is the last and the best. uh, 3.13, it says, speaking to the Lord again, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Watch it now. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked. That's the Antichrist getting his head bruised by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. So that word Selah is connected with that victory and that rest that's coming for Israel once the time of Jacob's trouble is overpassed. So let's go back to Psalm chapter 1. That is the key word over and over again it appears in the book of Psalms. Selah, Selah, Selah. And if you know what it's about, it kind of adds a little richness to the uses of the word Selah. The key idea, since we're talking about the coming kingdom, is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, Psalms is the heart of your Bible. And the heart of your Bible is about a king and his kingdom. Because what the Bible is about, it's about a king and his kingdom. I like Psalms too, gets me through the day, gives me something to dry my tears, comfort my heart. But Psalms is about a king coming into his kingdom. The Bible is about a king coming into his kingdom. That's the heart of your Bible. That's the book of Psalms. Now, Jesus Christ, therefore, is pictured as our coming king. Amen? Now, the book of Psalms is the next of our our wisdom books. And just to touch on our wisdom books again, we looked last time I was here at Job. Uh, Job gives us the bitter man, all about suffering. Psalms gives us the blessed man. Uh, He has the word of God, so he's blessed. Proverbs gives us the wise man. He's got balance Right? He's able to navigate life because he's got balance with God's wisdom. Ecclesiastes gives us the worldly man who is only looking at things under the sun. 
And the Song of Solomon gives us the godly man who's got that relationship and that deep love affair with Jesus Christ. So that's an overview again of our, um, our wisdom books in the Bible. And then let's look at Psalm 1, and then we'll launch into some specifics. Psalm 1 is the key to unlocking the entire book. If you wanted a key to understand the whole book of Psalms, you don't have to go further than the first chapter, right? Watch it. Blessed is the man. You want to be blessed? That's how Psalm starts. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That man being talked about is the nation of Israel before the millennium. Because you know what that nation's been doing? Walking in the counsel of the ungodly, right? Mingling with worldly wisdom, not the law of her God. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. That's a picture of Israel now restored in the millennium. And what happens to Israel when she gets into the millennium? God writes the law in their minds and in their hearts. Ezekiel 36, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. God puts the law in their mind and their heart. So once they're restored, verse 2, they're delighting in the law. They're meditating on it day and night. And verse number 3, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So there's Israel now, restored like a tree, planted by the living waters, bearing fruit. Just got to look at Ezekiel 47, and you see that in God's kingdom that's coming, that waters rush out from beneath the throne. They go down to the Dead Sea. They bring those things to life. They spread it over the seas of the whole earth. And guess what? Israel will be that tree of righteousness, bearing that fruit that Jesus Christ always wanted, right? Remember when he went up to the fig tree and he was hungry and there was nothing there and he cursed it? Well, guess what? In the millennium, that nation is going to bear the fruit that God wanted to bear. So really in those first few verses, in that first chapter, God's plan is encapsulated right there. Israel walking with the ungodly, Israel restored, falling back in love, getting that law in their mind and heart again, and Israel the head of the nations, bearing fruit as God's living waters heals the planet itself. I mean, you take that in, heals the planet itself. I can't wait for that day to see you've been regenerated. How much better has your life been since you've been regenerated? How about in the regeneration that's to come when the very planet is born again? That's wild stuff, man. I can't even picture it. I, I don't know, the last... My kids are going to get mad at me. But in the last few weeks and months, I mean, more and more, I'm just longing for that day. And there's a lot of work to do. I know people want to get married. I know people want to do stuff. I got lost family members. But there's something deep down in my heart just saying, even so, even so. So um, don't worry. That doesn't mean it's going to happen anytime soon. Okay. All right. So the breakdown, I know what it's like. I, I, I get it. Uh, the breakdown is very interesting. And I didn't come up with this, but... Uh, The breakdown really corresponds to the five books of Moses. And someone else did this and uh, makes sense to me, but you could read that over there and and do a comparison. It's interesting that like in those sections, you see like the things happening. Like in Genesis, you see somebody blessed, then falling, then recovering. In the Exodus section, you see somebody ruined, 
a redeemer coming and redemption, just like the book of Exodus. In Leviticus, it starts with the sanctuary. Psalm 73 is when Asaph talks about going into the sanctuary and understanding what God's doing with the wicked. Uh, Numbers is about the wandering on the earth. And Psalm 90, the first psalm in that section, is the psalm Moses writes when they're wandering. And uh, 107 to 150 is about the word of God. And that happens to be the section where chapter 119 shows up, which is all about the Word of God. So it's a good breakdown, works for me. If you come up with a better one, I'll steal yours next time, all right? So amen, amen. So let's go to Psalm chapter 16, and let's do some low-level flying through some of Bible pictures and important truths in our beloved book of Psalms. Now, many of the Psalms are what we call messianic, right? Meaning that they are pointing to Jesus Christ, they're speaking about Jesus Christ, they're foretelling Jesus Christ. Sometimes they're even Jesus Christ speaking right through them. And Psalm 16 through 22, you see in that little section there, a lot of Psalms that deal with the crucifixion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, written at least a thousand years before He died. Let's look at Psalm 16, let's jump into verse 9. Psalm 16 verse 9. All right. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. If you're a Bible reader at all, you're going to recognize that Peter quotes those verses on the day of Pentecost, speaking about Jesus Christ. That's the Spirit of Jesus Christ saying, Hey, Father, you're not going to leave my soul in hell, because his soul went to hell. Neither were you going to suffer your Holy One to see corruption. When his body laid in the grave, unlike yours, his body didn't rot, because there was no sin in that body for it to decay. So that body laid there, untouched, untainted, uncorrupted, until Jesus Christ came back to rise up again in it. And uh, it's amazing. There's, there's the Spirit of Christ speaking right through the book of Psalms. Now you go to chapter 22, another good one. A lot of you are familiar with this. Amen. Psalm 22, verse 1. There is Jesus Christ's cry from the cross. Amen. Now, we live in this ultra-connected, um, you know, Wi-Fi, high-speed, 5G generation, and we think just because somebody sees something now, they could tell somebody later. Think about it. This is David writing something down. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew doesn't have access to the original autographs, and the Spirit of God tells Matthew to write that as he records Jesus Christ saying it. How does that happen? That's the guiding hand of God over all of it, right? A thousand years apart, and he's quoting what Jesus Christ would say a thousand years before he said it, and it's not like he'd just go on his phone and say, what did they say in Psalm 22? No, this is happening in real time in Matthew 27, but it's the Holy Spirit reaching back to Psalm 22. And if you look at verse number 16, look what it says in 16. This is the Spirit of Christ now speaking. For dogs have compassed me, The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. David was never pierced. David never got his hands or his feet pierced. And this is a psalm of David, my heading says. So what's David talking about? Not something that happened to me. He's talking about dogs. 
He's talking about Gentiles executing somebody by piercing his hands and his feet. That's a thousand years before Christ. That's before anybody in Israel even knew what a crucifixion was. Right? Some of the other countries a few hundred years before Christ, I think it was the Persians and some other folks, started doing crucifixions, but the Romans perfected it, man. The Romans knew how to kill people. That's one thing they knew how to do. So the Romans around the time of Christ have perfected crucifixion, made it a great public deterrent, and guess what? A thousand thousand years before that happens, somebody's writing about a Gentile crucifying somebody by piercing his hands and his feet. Now, if that doesn't at least hook your intellect and say, huh, that Bible might have been written by somebody that knew something, you are intellectually dishonest. You have a philosophical bias upon your heart that you can't see something like that and say, wow, that's divine authorship. There is something wicked in your heart against God that causes you, well, what about this? Well, they could have done that. Well, they could have looked at this. See, that little figuring out is not the Spirit of God. If I found something in your wallet that said, you know, on Tuesday, uh, March 1st, or whatever, March the 2nd, Thursday, March 2nd, Pat Mishani is going to say, blah, 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 and you wrote it 15 years ago, and you kept it in your wallet, and I found it, you said, I said you were going to say this on that day. You know what I would say? Whoa, (laughs) I might bow down and worship you. But, you know, the atheist and the skeptic has got all these little alibis and all the little YouTube bots out there with all their little stories that they like to tell themselves to disregard the plain truth that if somebody a thousand years before crucifixion even was known could say, the Romans are going to crucify and pierce the Messiah's hands and feet. How does that happen? I know how it happened. You're kidding yourself if you don't want to accept how it happened. Now, look at verse 31. Go to verse 31. Look how the chapter ends. That was not in the notes. I'm in trouble. Uh, 31. Um, They shall come and shall declare His righteousness, amen, Lord, unto a people that shall be born, watch this, that He hath done this. You see how Psalm 22 ends? He hath done this. Past tense. You know how Jesus Christ ended up on the cross? It is finished. It's interesting interesting that Psalm 22 ends with, he did it, and the cross ends with, it is finished. I'm sure that's just an accident that those two things line up like that, right? That's the hand of God. Now go to Psalm 69. Not only does your book of Psalms give us pictures of Jesus Christ on the cross, it gives us the very cry of Jesus Christ's soul from hell. To think of these people that say Jesus Christ's soul didn't go to hell. The Bible ignoramuses, and if that's you out there in cyberspace, I'm talking about you. To say that Jesus Christ's soul didn't go to hell, when I could hit you with half a dozen verses off the top of my head about his soul going to hell, his soul being made an offering for sin, and all these other things, Isaiah 53. Here is Jesus Christ's soul in hell, and what he's saying in Psalm 69 mirrors and matches what Jonah says when Jonah's in hell in Jonah 2. Who does that but God? Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my, of my crying. My throat is dry. Mine eyes fail while I wait 
for my God. You look through Jonah 2, you say Jonah's saying very similar things when he cries out of the belly of hell, right? He says, out of the belly of hell, I cried. Jesus Christ is crying from hell. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right? That was the one sign Jesus was going to give that skeptical generation, right? The sign of Jonas the prophet. And there's a connection right there. Go back to Psalm 22 now. And Psalm 22 or the book of Psalms, shows us it's written by a shepherd, mainly, you know, largely David, and it talks a lot about our shepherd, amen? amen? Psalm 22, if you want to write this in your Bible, I have it written in my Bible, Psalm 22 shows us the good shepherd. The good shepherd who Jesus said, giveth his life for the sheep. John 10, 11. So what do I see in Psalm 22? The good shepherd laying down his life on an old rugged cross. How about Psalm 23? Psalm 23, verse 3. The Bible says, He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. That's not the good shepherd in Psalm 23. That's the great shepherd in Psalm 23. The great shepherd is the one who rose again from the dead and resurrects your life and restores your soul. Psalm 22, He's dying for you as the good shepherd. And Psalm 23, He's the great shepherd who restores you and leads you. Amen? Do you see the patterns? Am I the only one that's catching it? I hope I'm not the only one that's catching it. Hebrews 13 says our great shepherd which came back from the you read Hebrews 13:20. Let me go read that too cuz I'm going to butcher that verse. Hebrews 13:20 says, "Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd." Right? So in 23, we're talking about a resurrected life, we're talking about a resurrected shepherd, we're talking about the great shepherd. And then in Psalm 24 is the chief shepherd. You know what the chief shepherd's doing? He's coming again in glory. He dies for you in 22. He restores you in 23. He's coming back in 24. 24 verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory, don't you want to shout, shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, all second coming. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. There is your chief shepherd. And 1 Peter chapter 5 says, when the chief shepherd comes, he's going to give you a crown of glory that fadeth not away. His reward is with him. Good Shepherd 22, Great Shepherd 23, Chief Shepherd 24. Oh, the Bible is an amazing, amazing book. tells you about your shepherd. Let me tell you something up it tells you about in Psalm 19. Go to Psalm 19. You know, the book of Psalms also talks a lot about the physical creation. And the book of Psalms does a lot to show you how the physical creation can shed some light on God's words. Romans 1.20 says that you can understand some things about the invisible God from nature. And Psalm 19 verse 1 says some things about that. Look at it. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. You, you know what we don't do anymore? We don't look up. We're like beasts 
always looking down at our glowing rectangle. You know, always looking down at this inanimate, man-made piece of glass. That's what we spend our time looking at. You know what David would do? He said, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? When he's looking up there, it says when he was musing, the fire burned. We don't muse anymore. We don't think anymore. That's why, plug, that's why family camp will be a great time. <laughs> nice to get out in nature a little. You like that plug? I worked it right in there, right? Just get out. And that's why I used to, I, we haven't done it in a few years, but camping, we got to have a camping trip, right? Just go out camping, lay out there under the stars, just no phone to look at, no anything to do, nowhere to go, just breathe some fresh air, play in some mud, you know, wade in a stream, don't lose your flip-flops, you know, and kind of do all that stuff and just enjoy what God has given you. Because you know what? We're so removed from that, we've lost that sensibility you know we've lost that even a pagan in the bush could look up there at the sky and say who put us here who did this who is this great god I, i've mentioned a book before named Bruchko about a young man that went to south america to see this this tribe that no white man had ever seen and and they just they always when they began to give him the gospel they were like we always knew this remember my uh my, my, my Sabanim, John Smith, my, uh, my Taekwondo instructor, went to, I think, the Navajo Indian Reservation many years ago on a mission trip. And they began to talk to these guys that had never seen a white man, never been, uh, you know, around uh, us, quote-unquote, civilized folks. And they looked and they said, yeah, we've always known that there had to be some great one out there. Where'd they get that? Just an honest man looking at nature and saying, how could this thing have just, wow, you know. Just an honest man who doesn't sin against the light God gave him just to see that. But uh, the physical creation, let's keep reading. Uh, verse 2, day unto day uttereth speech. See, it talks. The fact that the sun comes up and, and goes back down and there's these cycles, that says something, man. If it was all chaos, how could you set your watch to it? If it was all in flux, how could the chemistry experiment I do on Tuesday be reliable on Thursday? If the world is just matter and energy spinning in some grand centrifuge of chaos and randomness and blind chance, how do we have laws of motion and energy and gravity and centripetal force and angular momentum? How do we have any laws in science? Day unto day uttereth speech. It says, somebody set this thing in motion. How can we have an almanac that says, you know what, next winter it's going to be bad, or next summer it's going to be good? How do we do, how can we have seasons that we could set our timetables to? Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard, so they are without excuse. Romans 1 says. Even the person that never saw a Bible, never heard preaching, never got in a church service, they are without excuse before a holy God because He put enough out there for you to have an honest heart to say, who are you out there, God? And if you followed that light, it would bring you to Jesus Christ. And verse 4. Their line, meaning nature and the sky and all that stuff, is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, speaking about the cosmos out there, hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Well, watch it. Very important verse. Which is as a bridegroom cometh out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. 
His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and His circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, nature is a good revelation. It's not a perfect revelation. It's a general revelation. I can't learn everything about God by just studying nature. Because you know what? Nature has disease, cancer, mudslides, tornadoes, death, dismay. That's all in nature. That's not what God's all about, right? But I can learn some things. And I see here in verses 4 to 6 that Jesus Christ is likened to the sun. Very interesting. And in verse number 5 it says, watch that again. He comes out of his chamber the same way a bridegroom comes out of his wedding chamber. Because you know what your Savior is going to do? He's going to call you home. He's going to have that private time with you when he weds you, goes into that marriage chamber, and then guess what? You come out with him, and then he's coming back with the advent. Anybody that says, oh no, there's no pre-tribulation rapture, you're smoking the peace pipe with the guys on the reservation because the Bible says right there that when he returns, when that advent comes, when that son of righteousness comes with healing in his wings and starts burning up the place, he's coming out of his wedding chamber like a bridegroom comes out after having consummated that, uh, that, that nuptial with his bride. He's going to get you first, beloved, and then he's coming back. Amen. It's right there in the book of Psalms. And it says in verse 6, he's coming back rejoicing. Oh, there's going to be some shouting in that day when he comes back. I think, I mean, I might be the last idiot on the last stallion at the end of that thing, maybe hanging on for dear life. But this crazy Italian, I'm going to be screaming. Probably about 50 or 60 lengths ahead is going to be Mel Sabaka. You're going to he, he screamed down here. He's going to scream when he comes back, man. There's going to be a shouting, man. There's going to be some shout. I can just hear him now. Woo! I can just hear him. Blew the speakers out, right? I can just hear him soaring through the cosmos. Let's go. Let's go, boy. On Desher, on Prancer. I don't know what he's going to be saying, but he's going to be coming back. And Jesus Christ is going to be rejoicing to run that race for the joy that's set before him, he's going to be rejoicing, rejoicing. And notice, please, notice, please, that it says when he comes back at the end of verse 6, there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now you could say that's just natural, and yes, the sun you know, do, provides the energy and the heat for our, our, our universe there. But uh, spiritually speaking, when the sun of righteousness returns, it's going to be hot. Malachi 4 says, when the sun of righteousness rises, the day is going to burn as an oven. And when he comes back, guess what? It's going to be hot. It's going to be heat. Nobody's, you're, going to, you're not going to hide in the rocks in that day. You're going to ask the rocks to fall on you in that day if you're not with Jesus Christ. But man, oh man. It's all there in the book of Psalms. It's all right there. Go to Psalm 33. Go to Psalm 33. Look at verse 6. Another verse on the physical creation. Oh, I'm doing good. Wow. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Right? Verse 9. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And that word, that's a reminder that that word is powerful, man. What do they say? Ex nihilo, when they talk about creation, right? Out of nothing. Get me the smartest guys. Line me up Dawkins. And Hitchens is dead now, but, you know, uh, Sam Harris and David Dennett and, like, all, you know, uh, 
before he died, Hawkins and Einstein, line them all up. Just make me a grain of sand. Just make me a grain of sand. Every mind that ever lived could not create something out of nothing. Oh, they're good at rearranging the stuff that's already made and using it to kill people, but they can't make something out of nothing. God speaks and it's done. It's a powerful word. Everything obeys God's word except Christians. Isn't that amazing? He can line up the molecules, he can line up the cosmos, he can line up the ravens, he can line up the birds and the stars. It's us that are the do that don't like listen when God speaks. Amen. That was a little preaching mixed in this. Some of you are like, really? We don't obey? <laughs> All right. Um, so there's another thing about creation. Psalm 104. I'm not going to read Psalm 104, but that's another chapter that speaks about outer space, speaks about creation, speaks about the natural world. Psalm 104. Let's go to Psalm 78, though. Psalm 78 is another very important psalm in your Bible. Because Psalm 78 is the second longest chapter in your Bible. And Psalm 78 is a recording of Israel's rejection of Jehovah. It's a sad psalm. The history and the failure of Israel to follow God and accept Jesus Christ. Look at Psalm 78. Look at verse 1. God says, Give ear, all my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Right? That's God pleading with them. And look what happens in verse 2. I guess they didn't listen, because then he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. You see what happens in verses 1 to 3? Israel rejects Jesus Christ. And remember what happens to the kingdom? It goes into mystery form. It goes into parables. Verse 1, he's saying, listen to what I'm saying. And they didn't listen. So verse 2, you get parables now. You get dark sayings. You get stuff where they're like, just tell us plainly, right? He stops telling them plainly after they reject the king's offer. And if you want to break Psalm 78 down, verses 1 to 57, verses 1 to 57 are all the things God did for Israel, all the things he did for them in the past, all the wonderful things he did, the exploits, how he helped them in the daytime and fed them and smote the rock, verse 20, and all those great things that God did for Israel, those amazing things that should have been an impetus for them to believe him. He spent 4,000 years trying to get them ready for him, for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ. But they reject him. So verses 58 to 72, the rest of the chapter, are all about Israel getting forsaken until the second coming. Psalm 78 is a very important chapter in your Bible about the kingdom of heaven. All right? Let's go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. If you didn't know this, these are the center verses of a King James Bible. I know you said, I thought it was Psalm 118.8. No, that's, that's wrong. That's been debunked. It's not Psalm 118.8. Uh, I didn't debunk it. Somebody else debunked it. But it is Psalm 103 verses 1 and 2 are the center verses. There are 31,102 verses in a King James Bible, and there cannot be one middle verse because it's an even number. These two are the middle. Watch it. Ready? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Isn't that apropos that the very center of your Bible says, Bless God? 
bless his holy name, bless the Lord. I mean, isn't that what these creatures are doing around the throne? Holy, holy, they're blessing the holy Lord. You know what, that would, if those are the center verses, you know what the center phrase then of the Bible would be? Four words. The end of verse one, bless his holy name. That's the actual center phrase of your Bible. There's 12 words before it and 12 words after it. That's the center. Bless his holy name. The very heart of your Bible says, bless his holy name. That preaches pretty good, right? Bless. That, we need to do more of that. I'll start with myself. I need to do less complaining and more blessing his holy name. Right? We need to do less uh, thinking about ourselves and more blessing His holy name. More looking after our own things and more just bless Your holy name, Lord. Praise Your holy name. Bless Your holy name. That's the center. And just a little tidbit. I had it written in my Bible and then I actually counted it all to make sure it was right. Yes, that's the 16th, that's the 16th, 11th verse in the book of Psalms. Right? The 1,611th Verse in the book of Psalms is that verse 1 that says, Bless His holy name. Just a coincidence, I'm sure. But, you know, for all the Bible skeptics out there. Let's go to Psalm 109. Psalm 109, if you want a heading, is all about Judas and the Antichrist. One of the fullest mentions about the Antichrist is in Psalm 109. You thought it was in John chapter 13. No, there's a lot about him in Psalm 109. I'm not going to look at all of it. I'll just jump into verse 6. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. That wicked man is the Antichrist, and Satan is at his right hand. In Psalm 109, if you go through it, you're going to see things about Judas in there, the Antichrist in there, the devil in there. It's a chapter all about that stuff. And you know, you know what comes right after that? Psalm 110. He said, I knew that, Pat. But you know what Psalm 110 is about? The second coming. Psalm 109 is about the Antichrist and the man of sin and Judas. And Psalm 110 is about Jesus Christ coming to crush his enemies. Because once you get the Antichrist show up on the scene, guess who's right around the corner? The real Christ, Jesus Christ, that's going to crush his head. Psalm 110 verse number 1 is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. The most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament is Psalm 110, verse number 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's sitting now. Part of me thinks he's getting up off his seat. <laughs> I know our pastor Dean back in Staten Island says he's, he's picking out his horse and getting ready to come back. But the Lord said, You sit here, son. And when you stand up, that means you're coming to judge the earth. You're coming to crush the enemies. That's why Acts chapter 7 is very, very important. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen sees Jesus Christ standing, that means the advent could have happened right there. He could have come back right there. and We could have gone into the kingdom right there, but God went, time out, and turned to the Gentiles and hit the pause button on his plan with Israel and turn to the Gentiles and we got in on something good and one day soon God's going to go, time in! And he's going to stand up and he's going to come back and judge those nations. Amen, amen? So that's an important verse. Psalm 119, I'm not going to turn there, but if you don't know what Psalm 119 is about, I'll pray for you, but Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible and it's all about 
a man's love for God's Word. We often attribute it to David. doesn't say it's a Psalm of David. I would probably assume it's David writing it because he was a man after God's heart, loved the Word of God, but he doesn't get his name assigned to it. But it's all about a man of every single verse is something about the precepts, the judgments, the statutes, your testimonies. Uh, if you want to just, uh, you know, fall in love with your Bible again, just read Psalm 119. Um, Psalm 120 to 134 are what we call the songs of degrees. And there's a pattern in all those psalms. You're going to see in those psalms over and over again, tribulation, second coming, millennium. One step at a time, over and over again. You're going to see tribulation, like Psalm 120, somebody's in distress. Psalm 121, somebody's lifting up their eyes, right? Psalm 122, somebody's going into the house of the Lord. So you see that pattern over those song of degrees. You're going to see the tribulation, the second coming, and the millennium popping up over and over again if you're paying attention. Go to Psalm 139 now. Psalm 139 is a psalm of David. He gets the name attributed there. Psalm 139 is such a great psalm, isn't it? You know, so many good things in Psalm 139. You see the... um, omnipresence of God in Psalm 139. You see in verse 7, uh, in verse 7 you see His omnipresence. Um, and and I, here's what I want to read, verses 7 to... You see verse 6, you see His omniscience, that He's all-knowing. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Uh, you see His power in here. Um, where is that? Mm, I had it written down somewhere. When I find that, I'll let you know. But I want to read verses 7 to 11 just to give you a little, little nugget there. David says, uh, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Because God's spirit is everywhere, right? He says, Do not I fill heaven and earth, <laughs> right? <laughs> is the Lord's hand shortened that it cannot save? Right? That the eyes of the Lord, which is the spirit, run to and fro throughout the whole earth. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. That's his spirit, folks. Amen. Just wherever you need him, he's there, right? He fills heaven and earth. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utter part, uh, uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. I want you to just take this away, that God's always got you. Because in those verses you see there's a rapture and a grave. And whether God takes you up by the upper taker or the undertaker, God's got you. You want to see the upper taker? That's verse 7. Uh, verse six, 8, I'm sorry. Um, no, verse number 9, I'm sorry. If I take the wings of the morning, if something just comes in here and just catches me away, guess what? You got me, God. And in verse number 11, he says, if the darkness covers me, if death falls upon me, guess what? You got me, God. No matter how God takes you, guess what? God's got you. God's got you. God's got you. God's got you. I think I need to say that one more time. God's got you, right? There isn't any place where you're going to hide yourself from him. There's nowhere that his hand can't reach you. Even if it's the rapture morning or, 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 the, or the death evening, guess what? The Lord is there. Lord's with you. You read some of those testimonies about old saints and somebody sitting in the room when an old saint was going home to heaven. Those usually glorious testimonies. Some that'll make your 
flesh stand up. People talking about just a lot of stuff that I want to get into now. But I've heard some stories about people seeing somebody or smiling or seeing a beautiful glade and looking at how beautiful it is out there. And their loved one's going, what are you talking about? What are you seeing over there? And somebody just looks over at them and says, goodbye. And just they fall asleep. I mean, it just... Something happens, man. And precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And I don't understand all that stuff. I mean, but something happens. The Lord has got you. He's not just going to, may you be, oh, they were alone in a hospital room. No, man, they weren't alone. They were not alone. Oh, they died alone. If they're saved and they know Jesus Christ, they were not alone. As they walked through that valley of the shadow of death, they were not alone. The Lord had them. And if He just calls you up one day and that, He says, come up hither, guess what? You're not alone either. <laughs> If we hear that trumpet sound and we start lifting up off the ground, guess what? We're not alone. It's not going to be scary. It's going to be the sweetest ride you've ever had. The Lord's going to just cradle you and carry you into His bosom right there. Amen, amen, amen. Psalm 150, verse 6, the last verse of the book of Psalms. Psalm 150, verse 6. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye, that's all of you, the Lord. Psalms means praise. The book that means praise ends with praise. That's where we should end up. We should go through the book of Psalms and want to praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. The book of Psalms is a song book. It was written to praise God. Can you go to Colossians chapter 3? Haven't gotten you out of Psalms in a while. Let me get you out of uh, Psalms. Go to Colossians chapter 3. If you go through the book of Psalms and you really meditate on it and you're really full of it and you get to that last verse, you should want to have every breath praising God. If you really grabbed it and got a hold of it and got saturated in your soul with it. Psalm, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse number 16. The Bible says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You know when you get full of this book, not just the book of Psalms, you know what it does? It gives you a song. It gives you a new song. It gives you a song of praise. It makes you want to sing. It makes you want to just hum maybe something. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Right, you're, just gonna, you're not going to sing that old trashy junk, that God-forsaken garbage that filled your mind. You know what you're going to be singing? Are you washed in the blood, constantly abiding? Jesus is mine. I come to the garden alone. Right, just it puts a song in your heart. Right, You hum it, you whistle it, you think of it. He gives you his songs in the night, the Bible says if you're full of it. Now, if you're running on fumes, you might be singing on empty. But um, let's go back to the book of Psalms. Let's go to Psalm 13. So here we go. Some big ideas from the book of Psalms. That was just a walkthrough of some key moments and key portions and some key ideas. How about some big ideas from the book of Psalms? To get some big ideas, we just need to revisit our three interpretations. Historical, Doctrinal, spiritual. How about historical? You know, David was a real man who lived about 1,000 B.C. 
You know why people turn to the book of Psalms? Where do you go when your heart's broken or you're troubled? You go to Psalms most of the time. I go there. You probably go there too, right? You turn to a Psalm. You want a comforting Psalm. You want something. You know why we turn there? Because we can relate to what David's going through. Because David gives us all the emotions that we deal with, man. David is on the mountain. David's in the valley. David's victorious. David's losing his mind. David's crying his eye out. David's shouting for victory. You know what that is? That's life. <laughs> sometimes you like you feel like you could touch the hem of his garment, and sometimes you're like, where are you? it's right where everything's brass. Heaven is brass. You feel like God, where'd you go? And Psalms, it's a real book. It's not like you know, pie in the sky, like, it's real, it's a man going through the emotions that we go through, living in a wicked world and running away from wicked stuff, I mean, let me just throw some at you, Psalm 56, that's David afraid, crying his eyes out, Lord, put thou my tears into thy bottle, are they not in thy book, Lord, do you see me crying over here, that's in Psalm 56, that's David, that's real stuff, man, you ever been there? Lord, you see my tears, Lord? Are they in your bottle? How about Psalm 142? That's David pouring out his complaint to God. The audacity of David to say, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, do you know what you're doing? Lord, did you fall asleep at the wheel? Right? Make you start singing, Jesus, take the wheel. You know, Lord, where, where are you? What's going on here, Lord? You ever did that? I'm sure you pious folks would never say, Lord, you're definitely messed up here, God. You, you, you must have missed a, a beat here, God. David did that. David poured out his complaint, right? Um, Psalm 63. Psalm 63. David is running for his life and longing to see God. Have you ever gotten fed up with this wicked world, fed up with your flesh, fed up with the devil, fed up with the unsaved, fed up with the lost, fed up with the ungodly? Just like, Lord, you know, my, my soul thirsted for thee, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When am I going to see your power like I saw it in the sanctuary? Nobody ever prayed that prayer. Nobody ever thought that way, right? David did. Psalm 51 shows us how to repent when we've sinned against God. David shows us repentance. We, we all have to repent. Psalm 89 shows us David's sure mercies, which... Paul says they're a picture of the salvation that we got, right? David really helps us relate to what we're going through. That's the historical big idea that this was a real man, real stuff that you go through, that David went through, and God put David's exploits in the Bible so you don't think you're nuts the next time you feel like you're losing your mind or you're down or you're like, why art thou cast down on my soul? Why art thou so disquieted within me, right? Why is that there? Because you're going to go through that. So God put it in the heart of the Bible because that's the heartache we go through as believers in the wilderness, running from Saul, running from the enemy. How about doctrinal? Well, there's some good patterns in the book of Psalms. You're going to see, I said it before, but you're going to see this pattern. Tribulation, second coming, millennium, over and over again. You're going to see some Psalms deal with trouble. Some Psalms deal with a deliverer coming to crush the enemy. Some psalms deal with a kingdom and rejoicing. Let me show you some. Psalm 13. Here's a psalm that points to tribulation for Israel. Look at it. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Now, I know 
Historically, David felt that way. But doctrinally, that's the cry of Israel in the tribulation. Look at that. How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest mine enemy say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. There's Jacob's trouble. And here's, there's a few others, a bunch of Psalms that do that, but here are some if you're taking notes. Psalm 12, Psalm 55, Psalm 60. Psalm 12, Psalm 55, Psalm 60 are all about tribulation psalms. Psalms where somebody's in trouble, somebody's on the run, somebody's crying out for help, somebody's pursued by an enemy. And go to Psalm 68. Some psalms point to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Many of them do. Psalm 68 is a really good one. Psalm 68, verse 1. Let God arise. Whenever you see that arise, second coming, man, he's getting up off his throne and he's coming. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God, yea, let them exceedingly rejoice, sing unto God, sing praises to His name, extol Him that rideth upon the heavens, second coming, by His name Jah, and rejoice before Him. Man, that's a psalm that points to the second coming. Man, God say, hey, God, wake up. I think it's Psalms talks about the Lord waking up as a man being woken up out of wine. Right? Just being woken up as almost out of a stupor, like they woke up Jesus on the boat. That's a picture of the second coming. Somebody being woken up and he's rising up and he's stilling the storm. And that's there. They're crying out, God, come on down, destroy your enemies. But the righteous are going to rejoice and be glad. That's second coming. You want some of the Psalms that do that? Psalm 10, Psalm 70, Psalm 82. Psalm 10, Psalm 70, Psalm 82. There's probably more. Those are a few good ones. Now let's go to Psalm 149. Psalm 149. And I said there are psalms that portray the millennium. How about Psalm 149? Here's one of them. Look at verse 1. If this doesn't sound like the millennium, I don't know what does. Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song and His praise in the congregation of saints. Let Israel rejoice in Him that made Him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their King. Let them praise His name in the dance. Remember Miriam dancing with those timbrels after Pharaoh was drowned? Guess what? When, when, when God puts the enemy down again, they're going to be leaping and dancing and praising God again. Let them praise His name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto Him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord taketh pleasure in His people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Didn't Jesus say the meek will inherit the earth? Right? That's all millennium, folks. That's all kingdom. That's all what's to come after Jesus Christ puts down that enemy. There's that time of rejoicing and refreshing and renewal. A lot of Psalms will show that. So that helps you now. When you see these things, okay, this is the tribulation. This is the second coming. This is, you know, the millennium. Here's some Psalms that do that. 47, 48. 66, 76, 106, 111 to 113, 
135, 146 through 150. I'll say that again. 47, 48, 66, 76, 106, 111 through 113, 135, 146 to 150. A lot of them picture the millennium because that's what the book of Psalms is about. It's the king and his kingdom. Now let's go back. Let's finish in Psalm 1 here. Psalm 1. How about spiritually? We did historically. We did doctrinally. Let's finish with spiritually. Because spiritually... The book of Psalms shows every believer, not just Israel, how to have a fruitful walk with God. Do you want that? You want to be blessed by God? Thank you, Pete. All right. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Ready? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. You want to be blessed? You want to have a fruitful walk? You can't. You got to walk in godly counsel. That's the key to the whole book we said. you got to walk in godly counsel. If you don't walk in God's counsel, you can't be blessed. You can't be the blessed man without the Word of God because God's Word is the blessing agent. That's how you get the blessing, through the Word of God. So how can you be blessed without, you know? Verse 5, uh, the rest of the verse. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the godly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. You know what happens, Christian? If you walk with the ungodly, you start standing in the sinner's way. You follow ungodly counsel and you start fellowshipping with ungodly people. You start doing things the ungodly way. You start doing relationships the ungodly way. You start doing your finances the ungodly way. You start doing everything in the sinner's way. Where did it start? You're not walking in the counsel of the, of the godly. You're walking in the counsel of the ungodly. So you walk in the counsel of the ungodly, guess what? You start standing in the sinner's way. You start walking the sinner's path. You start doing things that sinners do when you and I are supposed to be different. Man, you see some guys chasing tail like they're junkyard dogs. That's not how we're supposed to be as Christians. We're blood-bought Christians. What are we thinking? You know how that started? It started because somebody got away from the council. They start walking in this. They start standing in the sinner's way. And anything, jobs, marriage, family, just perspective, people just start looking at life like a sinner because they stopped getting the blessing from the book. That's some spiritual instruction, isn't it? Keep going nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You see the degression? You start walking in the wrong counsel. You start standing in the wrong ways. And then it's not before long that you'll start scorning what's right. You'll sit in the seat of the scornful. Like, ah, I used to go to church. I tried that Bible thing. I tried praying. Really? Right? That's the, digress- that's the digression. You stop walking in God's counsel. You start doing things the sinner's way. And before long, you're mocking the things of God. You make That's all a scorn is. You'll think little of it. right? How many brethren have come through our four walls that were in it, doing it, a part of it, faithful? You know what? They just got off course. And now, yeah, 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 church. Yeah, 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 fellowship. Yeah, 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 Bible. You know where they're sitting? They're sitting in the seat of the scornful because they started walking in the counsel of the ungodly and doing things the sinner's way. But verse 2 and verse 3 says, 
If you want to be blessed, you got to delight in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. If you want to be that tree that bears fruit, you just need the water of God's word, and you'll bear the fruit God wants you to bear. You'll be that tree he wants you to be. Finish in Jeremiah 17. I want one verse and then we'll pray. Jeremiah 17. So the question is really yours, folks. If God tells you how to be blessed, if God tells you what it takes to be blessed, you have a choice. Do you want to be blessed? Or do you want to be cursed? I don't know how to doll it up anymore. (laughs) You're either going to do what God says, or you're not. Now, we're all going to mess up and fall flat on our face, but at least you're trying to do what God says. But many are just not. (laughs) Right? They don't fall on their face because they're not trying. (laughs) I'd rather you fell on your face, got back up and tried again, than to never try and just live like a dingbat. Right? And in Jeremiah 17, you got that choice. I don't know, like I said, I don't know how to theologically doll it up, you know. Choose. Be blessed to be cursed. Follow the right counsel or follow the wrong counsel. Bear fruit or just wither. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Similar to Psalm 1. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. You know what that guy's going to be like? For he shall be like the heath. This is some, some tumbleweed, man, just some stuff that's just good for burning. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, dry, thirsty, in a salt land and not inhabited, desolate, empty. He said, you trust yourself, you trust your heart, you depart from God, you're going to be like a thing, a tumbleweed in the middle of West Texas, just dry and thirsty and just good for kindling. Seven, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. You know, when everybody wants to go into their little bunker and just buckle down until, you know, you know, the world ends with their powdered food and their bottled water and all that stuff, which I'm not hating on all of that. I'm not saying it's not wise to have some of that. You know, but you know what the Christian's supposed to be? We're supposed to be burning and shining lights. We're supposed to be unfazed. We're supposed to be, even though it's a Laodicean age and nobody wants to hear it, you could still be bearing fruit in a dry and thirsty land if you just trust God and keep walking in the counsel of the godly. That's the message of the book of Psalms. That's the message for your heart. Stay with the book and you'll be blessed. Depart and you'll be cursed. The choice is yours. Let's pray.